Ecclesiastes 8 through 9, 6. It can be found on page 557. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretations of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and he who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. Who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city for where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against evil, an evil deed, is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of, of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, 
How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, but both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as to he who shuns an oath, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all, also the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So the question posed by the title of this sermon is, should I bother being good? I realize it's not a question Christians often ask. It's uh, not one that we should ask either. Nonetheless, it is a question we have asked. It's also a question we find throughout the Bible. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, after Paul explains how Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, uh, and after explaining really grace, well, Paul asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? In other words, if, if the grace of Jesus Christ is lavished on you, you know, when you sin, should you sin more to get more grace? Well, obviously the answer is no, but it wasn't so obvious to some of the first Christians or Paul wouldn't have asked it. The Bible regularly presents us with truths like that, truths that are, are hard to grasp. And the author of Ecclesiastes is called the preacher. And in chapter after chapter of this book, he, he teaches a truth hard to grasp that the, the, the wicked are often rewarded while the righteous often suffer. Now, we've, we've all seen this to various degrees, and if we're honest, it bothers us. It can even take the wind out of our sails. It may even tempt us to ask, should I bother being good? Is it, is it really worth it? This past week, uh, I read the phrase pandemic fatigue. We're tired of masks, tired of distancing, tired of worrying about passing along the virus to someone. Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've experienced spiritual fatigue. Now, maybe you're tired of struggling with joylessness while unbelievers in your life seem irrepressibly happy. 
Maybe you're, you're kind of tired of spending hours and hours in Bible study, in prayer, in fellowship, but still not experiencing this kind of closeness to the Lord that you believe should be the outcome of all the efforts you've been giving. Maybe, and the singing today was just great, but maybe you're a little tired of singing God's praises when you know brothers and sisters around the world are struggling, praying for our believing brothers and sisters in North Korea this morning, or even just knowing of neighbors in our own city who are living really hard lives. And it might be hard for you to come together and just sing God's praises when life is so hard for so many. So I don't know where you are individually, personally, spiritually this morning, but I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to stop singing God's praises. I don't want you to stop engaging in Bible study, stop fighting for joy. I want you to enjoy the Lord, to pursue Him with your whole heart, to fight the good fight of the faith. I don't want you to be that runner who like, runs almost all the way and then on that final lap just walks holding his side. I don't want that to be you. Run hard to the very end of the Christian race. So Ecclesiastes is the, the longest complaint against injustice that we have in the Bible. And that's what makes it such a great book for unbelievers to read. We can show them the Bible is honest about truths that we see but find difficult to grasp. There is not a question that our unbelieving friends have about God that an author of the Bible hasn't himself already asked. Now, last week, we wrestled with this question of, well, how do we wrestle with injustice? And I suggested from the text that we need to learn to lament. We need to practice patience. We need to let God be God. We need to know our own heart. Well, today, my question is slightly different. What hope do we have in the face of injustice? What hope do we have in the face of injustice? And I'm going to give you three answers. A good answer, a better answer, and a glorious answer. All good at various different levels. I pray that God uses my words to help you battle spiritual fatigue. All right, first, a good answer. A good answer. Look again at verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. All right, what hope do you have in the face of injustice? Right, here's a good answer. Lean into God-given authority. Lean into God-given authority. 
Uh, chapter 7 ends in a dark place. Uh, we learned there that God made the human race upright. But when Adam sinned, it's as if we all sinned. And so we're born, everyone is born, seeking out our own schemes, uh, living as fools. Well, chapter 8 immediately holds out the hope of, of wisdom. In verse 1, the preacher asks, who is like the wise? The one who's wise is blessed. We sang about that in Psalm 1. The one who's wise is, is blessed. But then, all of a sudden, our text takes a turn. And in verse 2, the preacher talks about the wisdom of following the king. In a world filled with injustice, he says, it's good to lean into God-given authority. And for the readers of Ecclesiastes, this authority would have been their king. Now, this really isn't a strange turn for the, the preacher to take because throughout Ecclesiastes, he's actually often been talking about the goodness of, of having a godly king. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says a king is good for the nation. He said it means gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. The, right, the fields are what feed the people. So a king committed to the cultivation of the fields is a king committed not just to one family, but to every family. A king committed to the good of all of society, to all of the people. Right? Kings have the power and the authority to make a difference. That's what the preacher here is saying. And this is important because you and I don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of authority. Right? We may see the world's problems very well, but there's little we can do to actually fix them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I'll talk about that in a moment. But it underscores the need for a king who can actually provide justice. Look again at, at verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? In other words, you and I can see life's problems, and we, we should even be burdened by those problems, but we can't see the future to know how they can be fixed. Look there at verse, at verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. In other words, you and I just don't have power over life. We don't have power over the, the day of our death. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how long we're going to live. We're simply subjects who must, who must go to war when called to duty. And uh, when we give in to our wickedness, we should not think that we can escape our responsibilities. The point here is just that we're not very powerful. That's what he's saying there. And why does a preacher care so much about power and authority. Well, because he sees the injustice in the world and it really bothers him. Right? This, is a, this is a brother who's learned to lament. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Right? Under the sun, we hurt one another. Under the sun, we oppress one another. We take advantage of one another, right? Under the sun, injustice often reigns. Now, what hope do we have in the face of injustice? Well, again, that, that good answer, lean into God-given authority. Again, for the first readers of Ecclesiastes, it would have meant leaning into the king, right? Specifically, they were to obey him, keep 
the king's command. Verse 2. They were to engage him. In other words, given the opportunity, they should offer wise counsel to the king. If they, if they have the opportunity to, to have the king's ear, if they can, they can steer authority, well, they, they should certainly try. I get that from verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't be quick. If you've got the king's ear, don't run away. Right? If they have the opportunity to influence the king for good, they should. They should also honor him. I think this is implied, I think, from verse 4, where we're told the word of the king is supreme. It's supreme. He's to be treated with due respect. This isn't because the king is so great, but because God has placed him in this position of authority. Now, church family, this is relevant to us. We have an election on Tuesday. We see a country filled with problems, with injustice, and we're not sure how to make a difference. What can we do? Well, here's a good answer. As Christians, we're to lean into God-given authority. Regardless of who wins, you are to remember Ecclesiastes 8 and Romans 13.1, which I take to be a parallel passage, which says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. Neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump make that text null and void. Regardless of who wins, it is our duty to receive authority, however flawed, as a gift from God. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early church lived under emperors who often demanded their worship. And true believers refused to give them that worship. God alone has the right to demand our worship. But even when they sat under wicked rulers, tyrants, despots, Christians took heed of Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So, you may wake up on Wednesday morning or whenever we know the outcome of the election with a queasy feeling in your stomach. What should you do? Whomever is elected, pray and continue to pray. Pray that under his leadership, we will be free to live quiet lives, free to share the gospel, free to live out our faith. Pray our leaders will defend justice and help the oppressed. Obey the government where you can. Yes, disobey where you must. Governments have no right to demand our worship or lead us into sin. Engage the government as you have opportunity. At the very least, this means voting. Honor your leaders all the time. Back in the 1990s, I worked for a United States senator, and they had a training manual to introduce 
uh, I was an intern at the time, they had a training manual for the interns telling you the nuts and bolts of working in a Senate office. And the only line I remember is this, you are on a first name basis with the senator, call him senator. It was a cute way of saying that we needed to give him the honor his office deserved all the time. Thus, I never called him anything else. May Mount Vernon have a reputation for honoring our leaders. Now, the question is, what hope do you have in the face of injustice? The first answer is a good answer. Lean into God-given authority. Second, a better answer, right? not to replace the first answer, this is in addition to, look at verse 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But... It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity and I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. All right, here's the better answer. Perfect justice is around the corner. Perfect justice is around the corner. In verse 10, the preacher acknowledges the wicked die, but many of them die only after living a fairly long and prosperous life. And did you notice that the particular wicked he's talking about in verse 10 appear to be religious leaders or at the very least individuals who are very much uh, exercising uh, public displays of piety. They are going in and out of the temple. They are receiving people's praise. And so many passages throughout the Bible condemn those who would lead God's people but don't really know God or those who would publicly parade their faith without genuinely knowing the Lord. Thinking for a moment about the way this can happen among church leadership, I wonder how many of you are here today despite your experience with pastors or church authority? Maybe you have remained faithful to Christ even though the teaching or the example of pastors or church leaders in your life have fallen far short of the gospel. And Scripture rebukes leaders like this. The preacher's words in Ecclesiastes 8 remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus had no patience for those who claimed to lead the people 
or who wanted to be known as godly before the people, but did not, ex did not actually know the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we have these words that are going to be familiar to so many of us, where Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of those I take to be leaders. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They have already received their reward. Isn't that interesting? They have received their reward. It means there's no reward left for them. Right? If that's how they exercise their leadership, by you know, praying in public to be seen by you, if that's how they exercise their leadership when they don't actually know the Lord, well, there's no reward waiting for them in heaven. It means that when they die, they are going to meet their maker and face his wrath. That's what Jesus says. And it's the same idea that we find there in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Shadows can be very, very long. They can be very long, but not for the wicked. Yes, they may prosper in this life, but their prosperity will not reach into eternity. Justice is around the corner. Now, you may wonder, why would hypocrites prosper even for a second? If God is, is good and powerful, well, why doesn't he just take care of things right now? Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, an awful book, called God is Not Great. So not true. He says that if God were real, he wouldn't stand by while humanity practices evil and oppression. Well, this is a problem that the preacher in Ecclesiastes acknowledges. If God is so wonderful, why do bad people often live good lives and good people often suffer tragedy? Again, we're back to that, that riddle of Ecclesiastes that I keep bringing up again and again because the preacher brings it up again and again. And the author of Ecclesiastes has worked through all the answers. He's like a kid who can't stop asking the question, Dad, why is the ocean salty? Mom, why do we have an appendix? I don't know. Google it. Most parents just shrug their soldiers, but the, the preacher's asking why and why and why. And, and, and he finally realizes that some answers are ultimately out of his reach. Like look at verse 16. I think that's the heart of what he's saying in verse 16. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. In other words, he sees the suffering and unrest of the world. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Right? There's sometimes you just you don't you don't finally have a, a good answer to the difficult questions. And this can be really frustrating to hear. I think it's why the, the, the I think it's one reason why the preacher commends joy there in verse 15, and I commend joy for a man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil 
through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I think the point isn't that you should not ask any questions or that you should turn a blind eye to suffering so that you can throw a party. I don't think that's what's going on there. I think the preacher simply wants you to understand the fact that even though hypocrisy exists, even though suffering exists, even though you don't have always great answers to the wise, that shouldn't keep you from finding a degree of joy in the small pleasures of life. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Aaron, how can I really enjoy a good meal when I'm surrounded by such horrible injustice? I don't know if anyone's thinking that, but I think it's a good question. It is a difficult world. First, you can remember point number one and lean into God-given authority. If I can backtrack a moment. Maybe you need to be more involved politically. Maybe you should try to influence someone with more power and authority than you have. Also, you can remember Galatians chapter 6.10 where we're told that as we have opportunity, we should do good to all, especially to the household of faith, but not exclusively to the church. As we have opportunity, we should do good to, to all. Christians should be good neighbors. Right? Do you see children suffering without a home? You know, consider becoming a foster parent. Consider adopting. You can talk to Jacob and Carly Anderson about that. Now, do you see immigrants in need? Consider volunteering with the Good Samaritan Health Center or the Sandy Springs Mission. You can talk to Jesse Brannon to learn more. But if we're going to be faithful to what our text says, we need to we need to eat the dish that the preacher has prepared. We need to remember the truth of verse 13. When we see the wicked prospering, these nine short words run through our mind. But it will not go well with the wicked. In the long run, it will not go well with them. Justice is around the corner. And let me be clear about what this means. All those who make God their enemy in this life will find God forever their enemy in the next life. That's what I mean by that. We worship a God who is perfectly holy and perfectly just, and he is pure, and he will not allow a single sin to go unpunished. His justice is sure, it's reliable, he's faithful. Like you can vote for a candidate hoping that candidate will keep his promises, right? Read my lips. You can't be certain, but you can be certain about God. The man elected on November 3rd may be a Saul and not a David. He may do real damage to our country before these four years are up, but America is not our home. This world is not our home. God's plan cannot be thwarted by a king or an emperor or a prime minister or a president. Our leaders may not fix injustice in the world. We have to live with a certain amount of injustice and the suffering that it brings. But remember, it will not go well with the wicked. Injustice is on its last leg. Injustice is in the coffin waiting for the final nail to be hammered. Injustice is like a rotten, hollowed-out tree, one of the many trees that fell down this past week. 
Injustice is like one of those rotten trees hollowed out that just need one more swing from a tiny axe or one little squirrel to jump on that trunk before it comes toppling down. Remember what we sang this morning. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. In a sense, those two phrases, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Well, that's Ecclesiastes 8.13. It will not go well for the wicked. And I know it just sounds strange to our modern ears, but that is to be a source of encouragement to us. It is to help us, not to keep us from doing things to make the world a better place. If you are hearing me say that, you are mishearing me. Right? Lean into God-given authority. Seek to make a difference. But remember, remember, it will not go well for the wicked. Of this we can be certain. So the question is, what hope do we have in the face of injustice? I've given a good answer. It's from the Bible. Lean into God-given authority. I've given a, a, a better answer. Justice is around the corner. And I only say it's better because, because earthly kings fail. But there is a king who will never fail. Earthly kings try to exercise justice, but they do it imperfectly. Our divine king will exercise justice without one mistake. That's why it's a better answer. But finally, third, I want to I give you a glorious answer. I'm going to need to do a little bit of backtracking in this point, so don't get confused if you're taking notes. Yes, we are in point number three. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Yet the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now, what hope do we have in the face of injustice? Answer, Christ. The living can always put their hope in Christ. Now, before we see how these verses point to Christ, let's try to get our hands around them. Several Proverbs speak to the principle that God rewards our efforts. I love these Proverbs. These are great Proverbs to quote to your kids, to remind yourself when you're having kind of a lazy day, when you're at home because you're not commuting to work and no one's looking over your shoulder. And I don't know, does anyone still play solitaire on their computers anymore when they should be working? Right? These are great verses. Right? Proverbs 10.3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. 
Right? This is proverbial wisdom. This is often, perhaps even usually, how it works. But though this is often true, it's not always true. And in, in Ecclesiastes 9, the preacher reminds us that our labors, this is so discouraging. I mean, that's why, like the Holy Spirit, led the preacher to actually call this evil. This is discouraging, right? Our labors, our efforts, our holiness, our prayers, our works, they do not guarantee the outcome we desire, at least not in the short run. Right? The outcome is in the hands of the Lord. I think this is what the preacher means in verse 2 when he says the same event, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Let me try to explain what, what I think this means. You may have an Ivy League education and a great work ethic, but there is no guarantee, that is no guarantee that your business will survive. You may go bankrupt just like that lazy, lying scoundrel who started a business about the same time you did. The same event, the preacher says, happens to the righteous and the wicked. Right, that's a downer. On the other hand, you may be able to retire at 50 because you were such a hard worker and a disciplined investor and you imbibed Proverbs 10.3 and Proverbs 16.3. But you know what? There's this guy down the street who received an inheritance from his grandfather and he spends all of his money on cars and vacations. It's just that his grandfather's inheritance was so big that his nest egg is still 10 times larger than yours. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. This shouldn't keep us from working hard. It shouldn't keep us from doing good. But let's not overstate our contributions. You can do everything right and still be disappointed in the outcome. Right? You can raise your kids perfectly only to find them wandering away. You can be a faithful, faithful spouse only to see your husband or wife reject you. You can be the godliest single on the planet with every reason to have every person of the opposite sex uh, knocking on your door and yet never get married. Verse 1, the deeds are in the hand of God. You don't control the outcome. God controls the outcome. I think this must be one of the most freeing ideas uh, I experienced, came to understand more deeply as I got older, recognizing that it's not all about how hard I work, and I think I work pretty hard. But when I actually recognize that as hard as I work, at the end of the day, so much of our outcomes is in the hand of our almighty God. That is a difficult, it's an easy thing to understand. It's actually a difficult thing to deeply believe. Our deeds are in the hand of the Lord. Now, is that the end of the story? Is that all that can be said? You know, great, Aaron, I guess I'll go try really hard and, I don't know, pick out my grave. Is that the end of the story? Is that all can be said? Well, no, not all. Look at verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So we're, we're back to that last answer. 
justice is around the corner. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 comes to mind. It is destined for man to die once and after that to face judgment. So regardless of the same event happening to the righteous and to the wicked, well, we recognize that justice is around the corner and one day every wrong will be righted. Again, I know that listening to all of this can feel a lot like trying to get comfortable under a wet blanket. If you are young, you don't want to hear about death. Right? You're young. You want to focus on the long life ahead of you. And if you're old, you really don't want to think about death. You'd rather lose yourself in thoughts about family and friends and fun. You don't want to give too much time reflecting on the fact that before you know it, someone will be, someone will be announcing that you've died. But a proper view of death is hugely important. Remember, all those who make God their enemy in this life will find God to be their enemy eternally in the next life. This means there is only one opportunity to make God your friend. Suppose you are ready to buy a house, but you need a loan. You find the home you want. You are qualified for the money to buy it. You receive the contract from the bank. You sit down, you sign the contract, you get the check, you hand it over to the seller, and you get the keys to your house. A few months later, before you make yet another mortgage payment, you have buyer's remorse. And so you run to the bank, and you sit down with the loan officer. You hand him the keys to your house, and you say, could I have my money back? And he looks at you like you've got two heads. He says, no, but I'd like my month's payment. Right? You signed a contract. Right? You can't go back. There is no going back once you die. Right? The, 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 the preacher in Ecclesiastes has this truth down pat. Right? It's the infrastructure of all of Ecclesiastes. There is no going back once you've died. Right? That's the meaning of, uh, of they have no more reward in Ecclesiastes 9.5. Interesting language picked up by Jesus several times in the Gospels. Time's up. It's the meaning of Hebrews 9.27. It's destined for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Their fate is sealed. Those who die God's enemy remain God's enemy. And if you hear God's enemy, if you double-click on that word God's enemy, what, what pops up in your mind is like bad people. You know, like Kim Jong-un, you know, recognizing the, the, the sheer evil of a, of a dictator like that. Right? If, if that's what comes out into your mind when, when you, you double-click on that word enemy or wicked, well, you've missed the point entirely. Right? Injustice, I know this is where our minds go, but you need to recognize that biblically, injustice doesn't, play, doesn't take place out there right? in the lives of really bad people. Injustice takes place right here in our own hearts. That's how Ecclesiastes chapter 7 ended. It's, it's not just the Osama bin Ladens and the King John Uns. It's in our hearts. There's no one righteous, not even one. So we can stand behind pulpits and we can sit in pews. We can enjoy all the trappings of religion and not know God. This makes sense of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he's talking about those individuals who are going in and out of the holy place, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, with people praising them. But they're going to die, not knowing the God who made them. So what do you do when you see your own sin? Like when this 
actually begins to nestle in your heart. This idea that the wicked are not out there. That wickedness is in here. What do you do when that truth really sinks in? And maybe at times you, you even, even begin to wonder, do I know the Lord? There's hope for you. Like, praise God for Ecclesiastes 9.4. But he who is joined with all the living, in other words, he who is alive, has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I was thinking that that should be, could that be like our church motto? Mount Vernon, where a living dog is better than a dead lion. Right? No offense to dogs, but in the ancient world, they were dirty garbage eaters. Right? Close to the bottom of the food chain. And you may feel like that. Miserable, lowly, dirty, sinful. You may feel hopeless. You may be the victim of injustice. I don't want to escape the possibility that some of you here this morning are actually the victims of injustice. I don't want to escape the possibility that some of you sitting in a pew this morning are actually the perpetrators of injustice. There's hope for you. Take heart. If you're alive, there is hope. For the first readers of Ecclesiastes, the glorious answer was to put their hope in God. Right? Turn their eyes upward to see the Lord. Right? He created them. He redeemed them. Like the readers of Ecclesiastes would have known the history of Israel. They would have known that God made them. They would have known that God redeemed his people out of bondage in Egypt. They would have known that God gave them his law and called them his people. They would have known that God delivered them into the promised land even after they were spoiled brats for over a generation. They would have known that God gave them a king. They would have known that God continued to remind them of his precious promises to deliver them again and again. For them... Hoping in God would have been knowing their own sin and going to the temple for the forgiveness found in the shedding of bulls and of goats. This is what the readers of Ecclesiastes would have understood fearing God to mean, putting their hope in God, not simply living life under the sun, but living life in such a way that all of their days are recognizing they've been made by God for his glory. He is their rock. He is their refuge. Hope for them meant holding on to Yahweh in the good and in the bad, in thick and in thin, obeying God, even when they wanted to run away. Right? So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4 would have been a wonderful reminder to them. If you're alive, there is hope for you. Put your hope in God today. Right? Better to be a living dog than a dead lion. What about you? What is your glorious hope today? I know what it should be. I want to be as clear as I can be. Hope is realizing death is the day you'll meet your maker. You'll meet him alone. You will meet him unclothed. You'll meet him unable to hide anything because he knows everything. Hope is acknowledging your sin today. Admit your best days are littered with pride and arrogance, gossip and greed, and I could go on and on and on and on. 
No one here is perfect, not a soul. You don't deserve God's love, and you certainly don't deserve a seat at his table. Hope is seeing Jesus Christ as a sacrificial Savior. When the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 8.1, who is like the wise, Jesus should come to your mind. He isn't just like the wise. Jesus is the only wise man who ever lived. He lived a perfect life, a life he gave up at Calvary. He didn't come to, he didn't come to punish the wicked. He came to die for them. Don't mishear me. He will come again. Justice is around the corner. That's his second coming. But in Jesus' first coming, he did not come to judge the wicked. He came to die for them. He didn't come to mete out justice. He came to experience injustice. Like, think about the most horrible injustice that you've heard about on planet Earth. And it is still not as gross as what Jesus experienced on the cross when the full weight of God's wrath fell upon him. The glory of, his, the glory of Christ is his willingness to receive what he didn't deserve, death. To give what we don't deserve, life. Hope is... Realizing death is the day you'll meet your maker. Hope is acknowledging your sin today. Hope is seeing Jesus Christ as your sacrificial Savior. Hope is looking for Christ to come again. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter said, writing to Christians, he said, you are to set your hope fully, set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you at the revelation, at the appearing, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. Like if you are, if you're alive, there's hope for you in a sacrificial Savior. And if he is your Savior every day, you are to be setting your hope on the grace that's going to come with him when he comes again. When you realize though you see all your sins more clearly than you've ever seen them before, you're going to recognize more deeply than ever before how gracious Christ was to you and how gracious Christ is to you and how gracious he will be to you forever and ever. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Not partially. Not a little bit. Set your hope fully. It's not just that justice is coming. That was point two. It's not just that justice is coming. Jesus is coming. It's not just that all wrongs will be righted. I love to say all wrongs will be righted. But it's not just that all wrongs will be righted. It's that a truly good king is coming to save his people. So to my Christian brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Jesus is coming back. He will restore the world. He will wipe away every tear. He will gather his people into one kingdom. One kingdom. Right? Not red or blue. There's one kingdom. I guess purple. And Jesus will forever be our, our older brother. I don't know how many of you have, like, family problems. Jesus will forever be your perfect older brother. 
And all the, all the saints of all the ages, they'll be your extended family. And God the Father will be our Father and he will call us his friend. And this is our glorious hope. And to my non-Christian friends, put your hope in Christ today. Don't put him off. Give him your life. You won't regret it. I love the words of one of the earliest Christian martyrs is a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, He's called Polycarp. His name means much fruit because he's a man who bore great spiritual fruit in his Christian life. He lived a, a long life. He was, when I say he was a righteous man, I don't mean he was a perfect man. I mean he was a man who lived under the grace of God. He was a righteous man. And at the end of his life, he was arrested. And he was about to be burned at the stake. And he was told by the emperor, not directly, I think, by the emperor, but he was told by the authorities to recant his Christian profession and to worship the emperor. And Polycarp said, no. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Like to my non-Christian friends, I want you to be able to say something like that. I want you to put your hope in Christ today so that should God give you a long life and the Lord tarry, you will be able to one day say the same thing. How could I ever blaspheme Christ who has been so very, very good to me? I began the message asking the question, should I bother being good Maybe Christians will look at all the injustices at life and sometimes think that they should give up, right? That was that spiritual fatigue idea. Do you ever just want to give up? Don't let that be you. By all means, lean into God-given authority. Good answer. Lean into God-given authority. By all means, remember justice is around the corner. But more than anything, remember Christ is worthy of your praise and of your adoration and of your love and of your worship. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, for these very ancient words that have been instructing your people for generations. We are a people prone to think about life a lot more than we think about death. Father, it's clear that the authors of Scripture would have us think deeply about death and have us to be ready for death. And so, Father, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice would repent and believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hope would be in Him, and the grace that is to come again at his second coming. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.